Thank you for tuning in to another episode of One More Story. Just a quick programming note, parents, if you'd like to skip past the interview and go straight to the first story, you can find it at the 19 minute 55 second mark, but the subscription option is there for you if you prefer to put on just the stories for the kids. And please be sure to like, subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on all social media platforms at One More Story Podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy tonight's episode. My guest tonight is Tate Ellington. He is a prolific and talented actor and painter. You may recognize him from Quantico, Straight Outta Compton, Sinister 2, and my favorite performance is a deceptively folksy cult leader in The Endless. Tate, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> How'd I do? I mean, I left out a lot of credits because I, I went on IMDb, as I always do, before a show to make sure I... I get these intros right. And you have been, I mean, you've been working nonstop for nearly two decades, it seems. Uh, fortunately, yeah. It's been about, yeah, close to 20 years at this point. Uh, you didn't leave anything out. Those are all my highlight, <laughs> highlight reels. Well, I had to put the uh, endless in, of course. Oh, it's got to be in there. Well, yeah, which also is probably one of the ones I get recognized for the most these days. Really? It's what I feel the coolest about. Yeah. So, like, and it makes me feel very uh, hip because yeah. it's, it's a hip crowd that digs the film. So, yeah. But yeah, I've been doing this for, uh, I guess, 20 years, eight years in New York, and then 12 years here, and then one year in Ohio, and one year in Columbus, uh, Ohio, and one year in Newport, Kentucky. <laughs> wow. So, you were on shows working there, or... I was uh, working at a place called, uh, it was a Shadowbox Cabaret. It was a, um, a sort of uh, sketch comedy band uh, thing in the mall that served nachos and pizza. Uh, and it was, uh, it's a good time. I just ran into somebody the other day who had actually gone to it. They were like, oh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, worked in the mall. Wow. Sketch comedy in the mall. You can't beat it, you know, and then we would do some uh, improv and uh, different stuff like that when people were trying to buy their, their clothes at the Gap. So <laughs> nice. Kind of in their way. So how are you spending your strike days? How are you filling your time these days? Uh, mostly these days, uh, I've been painting a lot. That's uh, sort of always been my, my other career. Uh, gone to school for that as well as acting. Um, and so usually fill my time with that. Unfortunately, the, the studio I work in, which is my garage, tends to be close to 110 degrees <laughs> inside, has uh, no insulation. So a lot of just sweating half the time down to essentially my underwear because uh, I'm so hot. <laughs> and so just try and get that done. That's vivid. But then otherwise, been doing some of the picket lines, some um, going out there to some of the different studios. And then mostly watching the kids, like been doing a whole lot of running around with them, uh, making sure they're taken care of, which is uh, really welcome because they keep growing up on me and someday they won't want me around. So <laughs> it's true. You know, they say well, the, the days are long and the years are short. How old are your kids now? I got a about to be five year old and about what is today? The 15th. Oh, yeah. Five days. Uh, she will be five. And then uh, an eight year old who will be nine and about a month. So so they're. They're off at school and you've got some time to yourself and you've got a quiet, got some time, yeah. quiet place. A little breaks. <laughs> Found a nice, uh, nice lonely closet that I'm sitting in currently. You look like you've been kidnapped and <laughs> you're making one of those videos. 
It's uh, holding up currently the date uh, with the time. I've got a newspaper that says, you know. You are being held hostage by a children's bedtime story podcast. And I appreciate your time. Which is not unsurprisingly like most of my end of my nights. I sort of get held hostage for telling children's stories at night by my two wonderful daughters. Well, uh, that's perfect for this. And we're going to get into your nighttime routines in a a minute. But I want to hear more about your painting and the types of paintings you do. And I want to talk about anxiety because I know that that fuels a lot of your work or all of it. Absolutely. Uh, mostly for my paintings. Um, it started out, uh, I was always very detailed when I was younger, uh, extremely detailed, realistic. Uh, then slowly uh, sort of became more self-taught at a certain point. I went to left school and switched into a little bit more of expressionism. Then recently, during the pandemic, I at one point played around some with uh, abstract painting. And then during the pandemic, uh, sort of time constraints became where I didn't have time to mix up my, my paints and work as much on the detailed stuff. By the time I mixed up everything and got my palette ready, uh, I would have a request from a small child to come and play or to come watch a Zoom session for school or things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so realized, oh, wait, you've been wanting to get back into abstract a bit. So have been fully embracing that and it's been wonderful most of my stuff tends to be fairly colorful fairly large uh, i can't paint small i'm terrible at it so <laughs> most of the time it's minimum of four feet by four feet uh one i'm working on right now is about six feet by four feet wow and then luckily it's been really really wonderful i've had a number of uh I'm working on a commission right now and tend to it's, I would say it's more uh, figurative abstract, which is not really a thing, but I'm trying to figure it out because uh, I still use some figures. I still use like hands and feet uh, and some form of a person or, or an animal or things like that. But mostly, mostly beautiful colors that I thoroughly enjoy and make me happy. And I tend to use, uh, I don't use brushes anymore. I use uh, oil sticks, which is almost like drawing with a giant crayon uh, in a way, except it's, uh, it's oil paint. And so I usually use all the shading I use my hands for. So it's usually like very tactile and and sort of more sculptorly, okay. <laughs> if that's a word. So it's got some texture on it. Absolutely, yeah. Like it's got a lot of that uh, and then sort of um, can be like kind of a grainy texture to it. Sometimes I'll add in sand, things like that, just to give it a little bit more grit. But so, yeah, it's been really, really wonderful. I don't have fingertips anymore because I've sort of, or, or uh, fingerprints because I've worn them completely away by rubbing them on the canvas. So, so if you commit a crime, I'm, I'm totally, I'm in the, I'm free, free and clear. Like, so if you, if you hear anything, it wasn't me uh, and you can't prove it. So. so if you need someone to, uh, to bury a body, call Tate. I'm your guy. You want to give me a call? Uh, I can take care of it. I promise there will be no trace uh, because because I can't leave one anymore. Well, you know, in this gig economy, you just got to do what you got to do to pay the mortgage. You take what you can. Rent, you know, <laughs> people are going to be pushed to the extreme. So you got to, you got to, got to work when you can. <laughs> so talk a little bit about, because I, I watched an interview with you about your painting and about anxiety. And one of the things you mentioned was that you want the viewer to feel anxious as well. And so my question is, why would you want to spread that, Tate? Why would you want to do that? Because I I want to spread the love of constant fear and worry. Like, (laughs) why would I want you to be comfortable? 
Uh, it's uh, it's normally I try to have it more as like so if someone can embrace their own, gotcha, and come to terms with it. But normally, like a lot, especially my older figurative stuff, was a lot of people staring sort of directly at what would be a camera or somebody observing them, and just always felt because I, I uh, longer story for that is I had books that I'd found. I'd go to Strand Books in uh, New York when I lived there. Loved tearing through there and spending hours. Uh, it was kind of my getaway. And um, came across like old medical textbooks uh, for plastic surgery, things like that. And they have these wonderful photos that are just the most sort of blank staring directly into camera because they're doing before and after and comparing, you know, what they've done. And, and so it's these sort of blank stares, but very emotional because, you know, the people are about to go through different things or they're in the middle of going through things in their life. And just felt that that had a very anxious feel to it, but also a very direct and emotional feel. So did that and then I've now sort of converted that into my abstract. And as far as I deal with anxiety a lot, uh, it's been a constant thing in my life and luckily have sought help for those things, which I encourage everybody to do if you need to. But for me, painting now is trying to find a way to, I still get very anxious when painting. I'm still worried about messing up. I still get very, uh, oh no, it's right. And then you're about to screw it up. So stop. But I found myself pushing myself through that much more of not worrying about screwing up and it becoming what I wanted anyway. And so part of the painting itself to me is the fight with anxiety and fear, but finding the freedom to keep going. And even if I do feel like I screwed it up, it's okay. And had a perfect lesson once where I'd spent months on a painting, absolutely hated it, kept doing it, doing, couldn't stand it, was like, I cannot stand this painting. Had it in a corner, had a friend come by years ago and looked at it. He's like, who did that? Does that yours? Like, yeah, that's mine. I, I hate it. And he was like, can I have it? I love that. That's phenomenal. And I was like, if you will take this out of my house, please, you don't owe me anything. Just get it out of my sight. Uh, but he loves it. It's one of his favorite things I've ever done. And so learning that, that, it, that you never know what somebody's going to like um, or what they will find in it or appreciate from it. And that's what I love about most of painting anyway, is that you decide. Uh, I like it when my audience decides what it is to them. Right. I know what it means to me. Where can people buy your paintings, see your work? How do they find you? Uh, right now, uh, I have a site called Saatchi Art, S-A-A-T-C-H-I. But they, I have my stuff up there, uh, sell through them. They've been really wonderful uh, about some promotion, things like that. I also have my uh, own site, TateEllingtonStudio.com, uh, all one word. And then also on Instagram, you can find me either on my page at Tate Ellington or at Tate Ellington Studio. And that's where I've been posting a lot more of my work recently. Trying to learn to be a uh, create content, which as a 44-year-old man, I am not as good at anymore. <laughs> I'm doing You're my best. preaching to the choir, man. <laughs> Luckily, my wife is very kind to me because she will normally uh, proofread most of my posts or anything else or just say, this is stupid. You shouldn't post this. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you, my dear love. Like, uh, thanks for looking out for me. Yeah, no, I know when I posted the first, I had three episodes done and I launched three the very first week and I was meticulous. I overthought everything. You know, I had sound issues because I was still learning all of this. And, you know, I, I drove myself crazy because also I'm a perfectionist. I hate making mistakes and and I obsess over if there's a background noise or if there's something I can't remove or if there's there's any imperfection, I obsess over it. But because I've committed to a weekly format, I just don't have the time to micromanage and overthink everything. 
And there's something sort of liberating about it because, you know, it's it's not perfect every week. There's always something that could be fixed or adjusted or made better. But there's something nice about just getting stuff out there. A hundred percent. That's sort of what I always, that's what's been really nice about recently, any work recently, and especially painting and all that. It just sort of being okay with feeling that you messed up uh, and then realizing, no, you didn't. And also lessons trying to teach my, you know, kids. It's sort of trying to remember oh, wait, they're going to see you worry about these things. And so do your best to to always let them know, no, 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 try. Do you know? And if you fall flat on your face, that's okay. And and if it's not perfect, that's okay. Yeah. Also, while teaching them that, learning it myself. <laughs> yeah. So. No, well, and also the valuable lesson, too, that I've sort of taken me years to understand is that no one is paying as close of attention to you as you. I mean, it's sort of a narcissistic thing, right? Where you're like, yes. oh, they're all noticing everything because they notice everything about me. And yeah, you're like, no. Because I'm so important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just like, get over yourself. No one, yeah. like, no one's paying that much attention to you. Yeah. They really they're thinking are. about themselves currently. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But there's something liberating. In, in figuring that out because then you're like, oh, yeah, nobody cares. Nobody's paying attention. Yeah. Well, that absolutely ties into the anxiety thing of just like most of my therapists are like, I promise you're thinking, yeah, about yourself way more. Nobody notices you. <laughs> you're like, okay, yeah. great. Well, how do you do in social situations? Do you have social anxiety? or? Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I fake it till I make it. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, for me, I always enjoy smaller group of friends than, than right. a big, large party, like anything that can be at max, like 10 friends. I love that. We can all sit and talk and I can find where either I, I want to sit or not. And I, I love to listen. I really enjoy listening to everybody. I feel like if I didn't have to talk, I wouldn't. But, you know, then you become kind of weird in the corner and they're like, no, 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 you should say something. <laughs> but anytime going to uh, my wife is very much an extrovert, very good about getting in there, wanting to meet everybody. And I love I have no like not loving to meet people, but um, I get scared. I get really terrified. I have to prep myself to go into an environment. Same for work. Anytime um, going on set, it's a it is a real like here we go first day. I overcompensate in a way by having a lot of questions to ask or like making sure I'm always like, what do you do? What's this job about? How does that work? And I'm genuinely interested. I really do love all the jobs that everybody's doing, but it's my way of getting comfortable. It's also my way of being comfortable on camera. If I feel like I know everybody there, suddenly I'm with friends as opposed to, you know, a group of strangers who are all staring at me, hoping I don't screw up <laughs> so that they can go to their lunch break. <laughs> but any any kind of parties, those are those are rough. I also made a great mistake. Good good thing for a party it was just a few weeks ago it was somebody's birthday party. I thought it was somebody else's birthday party. I had the oh, wrong God. person the whole time. And then me and my wife were at dinner before the party. I had decided, you know what? I'm I'm gonna be comfortable tonight. I'm not gonna dress up. Everybody I know everybody there. They love me. Why would they care if I'm not in a nice shirt, you know? See my wife in a nice sort of outfit, you know, I was like, uh, it's all right, she loves me, we're good. Oh, I can't wait to see, you know, Brit. And then it was she was like, No, it's Bridget. And I was like, What are you talking about? <laughs> she was like, oh, No, no, boy. no. We're going to this other person's house where you really know nobody. No, it's like, oh great. <laughs> and then felt the need to explain to everybody why I was just wearing a t shirt while they were all dressed very fancy. But again, none of them cared. Like yeah. so worrying about yourself, you know. You hide it very well on camera because you come off so natural in your performances. So whatever you're doing is working. 
Thanks, man. I really, truly appreciate that because it is, it is. I, well, I also think part of that is that's the place where I can be relaxed in a way. Like that's almost, and I know you're not supposed to necessarily use your, uh, everybody's like, no, acting's not therapy, which I kind of disagree with. I'm like, no, pretty much everything's therapy. It's, you know, it's, it's fine. You're, you're working through everything. That's part of painting. That's part of acting. That's part of discovering about yourself and others. Uh, but that's where I feel safe in a way. And I still get really nervous. I still don't want to screw up. You know, I'm still afraid of dropping lines, but somebody's already written the words for me right. and I'm able to go like, this person is this way. So I can be confident in what I'm saying. And then the second they call cut, it's back to like, no, oh, <laughs> I'm weird. I don't know what to do. Uh, right. I'm going to go pretend to go to the bathroom just so I can uh, get away for a second. Well, so with your anxiety, you know, you, you said you uh, in the interview that I watched, uh, you said you wake up with anxiety mm -hmm. and you go to sleep with anxiety. And since this is a bedtime story podcast, I am particularly interested in how you quiet your anxious mind at night? Uh, normally, getting ready for bed tends to be normally not in bed or not closing my eyes until midnight, which is stupid with two children who are going to wake you up oh, early boy. in the morning. But then um, usually settle down. I'll be on the couch. Uh, maybe we're watching TV or something, but I'm normally drawing on my iPad. I tend to be doodling on that or roughing out paintings I've been working on or kind of toying with ideas so that I can go in the next day and kind of know what I want to do. And then normally we'll retire to, to the bed, uh, lay down. And I would say for the past, I don't know, maybe like 10 years, almost since we got to LA, I read a couple of comic books before I go to sleep. Like I had something about it is I enjoy it. It's easy. I'm not having to dive too deep. And anything, uh, I found that kind of once I got to LA, I stopped reading uh, as much and listening to more podcasts or uh, audiobooks, things like that. Because um, I used to read all the time on the subway. But usually that tends to be it. Like a couple of comic books kind of quiet my head down a little bit. Then I might look at, at the phone, but I tend to try and turn off any sort of, I don't like looking at um, any sort of social media normally before bedtime, anything that'll get my brain too sparked or anything like that. And, you know, it's, kind of comforting to watch, you know, to listen or, or read, uh, I don't know, the uh, the Hulk or see how he's doing <laughs> and see how, how Wolverine's faring. Uh, I am probably just the most basic comic book reader. I wish I could do deep dives and name every amazing character, but you know, but yeah, that tends to be my kind of way to settle down. And what about your kids? What's your routine with them? Uh, trying desperately to get them to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the routine tends to be like, hey, guys, stay in your room. No, seriously, I really, you got to stay in your room. Just go to bed. Uh, with them, normally we have the same sort of routine each night where get our baths, get those done. Normally, we, we fortunately have two bathrooms, so we'll, you know, put both of them in. They're separate ones, you know, check in on them, uh, wit more than Veda. And then normally start with wit. We'll get her and her PJs, brush your teeth, and then usually tend to read about two books, uh, maybe two, sometimes three. But two seems to be kind of the, all right, let's settle. And then, you know, a lot of uh, encouragement for the day ahead and uh, making sure they always know that, that I love them and they're the most amazing things in the world to me. And they're the coolest, bravest, most awesome, intelligent uh, ladies I know. So, yeah, always ending with that. I love that. I love that. Well, with that in mind, Tate Ellington, are you ready for your first story? I'm ready. 
The word is rock wall. Once upon a time in the countryside in England, a long time ago, this was probably eight, nine hundred years ago, there was a very tall rock wall that divided the properties of two different feudal lords because they had a feudal system in England, if I remember my history. I could be totally wrong, kids. This is not a, a history lesson. I'm just making up words. There was this rock wall, and it divided the properties between a very wealthy knight named Richard and another knight named Philip, who was not as wealthy as Richard. And Richard had many, many animals. He had deer on his land that would run. He had cows. He had sheep. He had pigs. And Philip had some chickens and not much else. He had a, a farm cat that would run around and chase the chickens. But Philip's property was kind of sad and it was run down and he just you know these knights they would they would make their money doing night things and going on night adventures and they were sort of they were part of a a very specific order of knights they were like mercenaries they were like knights for hire right and they were in these like different groups and, and Richard was in a group of knights that just got the better gigs, right? Like the king would be like, hey, I've got these two different groups of knights. Richard's group was named the Silver Knights and Philip's group of knights, his club of knights, was named the Purple Knights because they felt that they were brave. And purple is a color that's associated with bravery and hope. Well, Philip didn't have a ton of hope because he looked around on his farm and it just wasn't doing that well because he wasn't getting these premium assignments from the king to go do the cool night things and go on, you know, different adventures, go off to different lands and colonize people who just wanted to be left alone and live their lives. But in England, that's what they did. It was just like, it was just the way things were. And they didn't think it was wrong, even though in hindsight, through the lens of the year 2023, we know that mostly people just want to be left alone and they don't need saving and they definitely don't need conquering. And that was the thing with, with Philip too, is he wasn't into the conquering, right? And so that's why he in the conquering jobs, those were the ones that really, really paid well, right? And he just thought it was wrong. Like he, he thought that these other countries, empires didn't need conquering. So he would take all the small gigs. Well, one day the king came to Philip and he said, Philip, I got a job for you and the Purple Knights. The king? Being a somewhat wise king, said Philip, I need you to go and find another land that we can conquer. Philip said he knew it was his opportunity. He knew it was a big one. 
He knew this could change his entire life. He could possibly get more chickens, more sheep, maybe even a nice pig or two. He said, sure. Or more appropriately, he said, why, yes, my liege. I would be honored to go on this journey to find other people and conquer them. At least that's what he said. Now, what he was thinking in his old brain there was, oh, no. I really, really don't want to do that. I don't like conquering. I like living here. I wish I had more, but I really don't want to go and take over a whole nother group of people, especially ones I don't know very well or at all. But he knew he had to do what his king had asked, despite his reservations. So Philip spoke to his other purple knights. He said, gentlemen, we're going on a quest. It'll be a long one. We'll need ships, we'll need horses, we'll need food, we'll need rice. You gotta have rice. If you don't have that, it's, it's a problem. It's one of the most popular items really to eat across the entire planet. And they said, but I thought we were against that. We normally do the small jobs. He said, I know that. I know we normally do the small jobs, but our king has asked us to do this one. Okay, said the other knights. You do know we don't like conquering, correct? Like we've established that. He said, yes. I'm aware we talk about it quite often. That's normally one of the things we say to each other the most is, hey, I don't want to conquer anybody. Can't we just go and, I don't know, hunt for deer or something in the, in the magic forest? There was a magic forest, by the way, but that's a different story that maybe will be addressed another time. But the knights gathered up their things. They wished their loved ones goodbye, said they don't know when they'll be coming back, but they know they'll be conquering when they do. Their loved ones said goodbye. They also said, but I thought we didn't like doing that. They said, yes, I know, again, but we have to do it. So they loaded up onto their ships and they sailed away, all the way across many seas. They came to a distant land. And when they landed, they met a new group of people there who turned out to be very much like them. In fact, they were also knights. They also had a king. They also had rice, which again, is one of the most popular foods on the planet. And they said, we're here to conquer you. And then the other knights, being taken aback, said, well, we were coming to do the same thing to you. That's surprising. So they had somewhat of a conundrum. Conundrum would mean a problem, an issue. It's a big word. In fact, I probably didn't say what it was right, but that's okay. We can look it up later. So they said, Philip, to the other knight, said, well, first off, what's your name? Let's get that right out of the way. The other knight said, well, my name is Galfmore. Philip said, excuse me? He said, it's Galfmore. Galfmore. Well, that's an interesting name. He said, I know. I'm very proud of it. Well, Galfmore, said Philip, do you mind if we go ahead and conquer you? Galfmore said, well, no, I take umbrage at that. I, I have issue with that, my friend. So they realized they were at an impasse. So they decided the way they could settle this would be a race. Now, not a horse race. No, 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 a foot race. Galfmore said, well, the only way we do foot races in, is in full armor. Philip said, well, just so happens that's the same way we do it. Starting to turn out they have a lot more in common than they thought initially. So, all the gentlemen gathered around, 
all the noble ladies, all the noble knights, and even some of the peasantry, because there were things called peasants. Again, it's a feudal system, which we've learned is a not-so-good system, and hopefully we have gone past that. So they all gathered around. They met on a giant field. Philip said, I'm ready. Galfmore said, well, so am I. So they prepared for the race. And as they got down in their positions, ready to go, a terrible thing happened. Galfmore pulled a hammy and he couldn't walk. He couldn't race. He could barely move. It was a bad, bad hammy pull. And if you've ever pulled a hammy, a hamstring, you know how painful that could be. And so Philip sighed. He's like, well, I, I guess I, I win the race. And, and I guess we get to conquer you. And, and Galfmore took off his helmet and he had the, the most desperate pleading look in his eyes. And he said, Sir Philip, I have terribly injured ye hamstring. I need medical attention. The thing about the Purple Knights was they always brought a field medic with them whenever they would go anywhere. And this was sort of a new thing for Galfmore and his knights because they just weren't as advanced, especially with dealing with hamstring injuries. And, you know, Philip had had some struggles with his hamstrings in the past. And, and so he always insisted to bring the field medic named Roderick along with them. And he looked at Galfmore and he took pity on Galfmore. So he summoned Roderick with the med kit. And the med kit was, it was a, a cured and tanned sheep's bladder that contained medical supplies. That's how they carried things back then. They didn't have Ziploc bags or backpacks or anything with zippers. It was sheep bladder. And Roderick came running over and he took a look at the hamstring and he pulled out some ointment, some some herbs. It was a, a potion almost of herbs mashed with sour cream and onion and it smelled delicious but you couldn't eat it it was really only to be rubbed on injured hamstrings so Roderick tended to Galfmore and instantly Galfmore started to feel better he said where did you get this this magical cream and Philip said well a guy here, Roderick, he's just, you know, he's he's the best. He mixes all this stuff up. I don't even know what's in half this stuff, but, but it works. We got all sorts of that stuff over in England. I mean, not all the knights do, but the purple knights do. So Galfmore had an idea. He said, well, do you have corn? And he said, yeah, we've got corn, but it's not great. And, it's, and Galfmore was like, well, we have like the best corn in the world. And he said... Maybe instead of trying to conquer each other, we open up a trade route. I'll give you the best corn in the world if you can send me medicine. That way nobody has to kill anybody and nobody has to get conquered and we can all benefit. And Philip looked around at his other purple knights and they were nodding their heads because they didn't want to be doing the conquering. They 
really enjoyed their modest lives, living on their simple farms, hunting deer, rescuing cats, you know, all these like little jobs that needed to be done in the villages. They were cool with that. They were they were lovers. They were not fighters. And so he realized that that's what they should do. And so they loaded up their ships with the best corn in the world and shipped back to old England. And then about three months later, because it takes a really long time to get across the ocean, they sent another ship with Roderick and Philip and a few of the other Purple Knights. They didn't need all of them because they weren't doing any conquering. This was a peace mission. They went back across the ocean and they delivered the best medical supplies that Roderick could cook up. And they maintained that partnership and that relationship for centuries. And no one needed conquering. The end. Tate Ellington, do you have energy for one more story? Oh, absolutely. All right. The word is party. Once upon a time, there was a old shed. Used to be back the back of a house. The house was unoccupied. Nobody lived there anymore. The house had been there for probably a hundred years, so a century. That's ten years times ten years. So ten ten. If anybody's having to do math. So the shed behind this house that had had been abandoned for years and was was decaying and running down. There was spider that used to live in this old shed. Now, she had been there for, for years, but she'd been there a long time without any any other friends. Nobody really came around. She was still the only spider there. She hoped to have friends someday, but she'd heard of them. She'd heard of friends. But she was very lonely. So she decided, I'm going to have a party. Now, I've only heard of parties. They used to have them in the old house back in the day. Wonderful parties. They had cake. They had ice cream. They had beautiful, beautiful bouquets of flowers and party favors, and everybody would run around. The spider would watch those old parties, and she'd dream and dream of one day having one of her own. Well, now was the time. The time had come to finally have a party of her own. But how would she have one? She didn't have any way to send out invitations. She didn't even know where to go. But she said, I'm going to journey out. I'm going to leave the shed, and I'm going to go find some friends to invite to my party. So she packed up her things. She packed up her webbing. She left her old webbing there because hopefully she'd be back. But she got some things together. She still had a fly that she had wrapped up a few days before. Now she felt a little bad about it because maybe she should have invited him to her party. But she was hungry and she had to eat. And she was sure that the fly understood that. So she packed him up, put him on her back, put on one of her favorite coats, because she always had a coat for the winter. It had eight, eight arms, which sometimes could be hard to get into, but she'd figure a way into it. It was red. It was a beautiful red coat. So she started on her journey. The sun was high. She struck out. She crawled down to the grass and started walking. Now, the grass was tall. It was much taller than she remembered. It looked very short from her perch in the old shack. But when she got down on the ground, it was it was giant. She looked up and marveled at how amazing the ground was and how beautiful. 
And as she's walking along, she hears a rustling. And first she's a little scared. Even though she's a spider and some people are scared of her, she can also get scared. She said, who's there? No answer. She called again. Who's there? Still no answer. She thought maybe if I, I put on a brave voice, then I won't be scared and I can, I can ask. She said, who's there? As she stamped all eight of her legs. And then she heard a voice. It's just me. Who's just me? Oh, it's just me. Stuart said, well, would you please come out, Stuart? I'd like to see what you look like. He said, okay. So Stuart came out and Stuart was a caterpillar. She said, oh my, I haven't seen one of you in forever. You used to have caterpillars all the time at the shed. He said, well, what are you? She said, well, I'm a spider. He said, well, what's your name, if you don't mind me asking? She said, well, it's Gail. I'm Gail the spider. He said, well, what are you doing out here in the grass? I thought you guys usually stayed up in, in old sheds or up high. She said, well, funny you should ask. I'm on my way to try and find friends for a party. He said, a party? What kind of party? He said, well, just a let's get together party. Let's celebrate our friendship party. Well, I've never had one of those. She said, well, would you like to come along with me to help me find friends to go to my party? He said, well, sure, I'd love to. So they started walking along. They walked further and further, started talking. Gail said, well, how long you lived in these this grass, Stuart? He said, oh, I don't know, about 10 years. 10 years, said Gail. That's a long time. Then yeah, it's been a long time, but that's okay. Then Gail, being intrigued, said, well, do you have any friends? Said, no, not really. Huh, would you want to be my friend? Said Gail. Really? Said Stuart. Yeah, said Gail. I don't have many friends myself. Everybody seemed to leave when the old couple cleared out of the old house that got abandoned. There were old people that used to live in the old house that got abandoned, in case you were wondering. But that's another story for another time. So, Gail and Stuart became friends, and they continued to walk. Then they came upon another sound. And then Stuart said, Oh, what's that? Gail said, Well, let's find out. So, she said again, Who's there? No answer. Who's there? Still no answer. So Gail said, Stuart, say it with me. But I'm scared, said Stuart. She said, well, I'm right here with you. I'll be with you. We're together now. We're friends. We can say this together. He said, okay. So then they said together, one, two, three, who's there? Then they heard a voice. It's just me, said just you. Yeah, it's just me, said, well, just me. Would you come out? Uh, okay. So as they're looking, the bushes start to shake, and lo and behold, it's a squirrel with a big bushy tail. He was a black squirrel. Sometimes you don't see those. They can be kind of rare. He said, hey, what are you guys doing? They said, well, we're going to find people to invite to a party. A party? What's that? Said the squirrel. Well, it's a gathering of different people and friends where you get together and you talk and you celebrate and you, you know, you have fun. Maybe you have cake. Well, that sounds great, said the squirrel. Would you like to come with us? said Gail. Yeah, said the squirrel. I was just sitting here in these bushes. Okay. Well, why don't you come along? The squirrel said, We'd go a lot faster if you guys jumped on my back. They said, That's a great idea. So they hopped on his back and they took off racing as they raced through the woods on the back of the squirrel. His name was Harold, by the way. They had forgotten to ask, but they asked later once they were riding. They said, Oh, goodness, we forgot to ever ask your name before we hopped on your back and took off through the woods. And he said, Well, it's Harold. Said, good to meet you, Harold. So they raced all through the forest, all through the grass and the fields, and they came across so many other friends. 
They came across a butterfly. They came across a badger named Sarah. They came across a dragonfly. And they even came across a bear. His name was Alan. Alan the bear. And Gail said, Well, I really appreciate all you guys taking me to find people to have a party with. But we didn't really find anybody. I don't know where we're going to go. And then she thought about it. She looked around and saw all the other animals and insects, all the friends that she had made along the journey. Suddenly it dawned on her. Well, wait a minute. We can have a party right here. They all looked at her and they went, What do you mean? She said, Well, we can have a party. We're all friends now. We've all had an amazing adventure running around, finding everybody. Whole time I thought I was looking for other people and turns out I was looking for you guys. I said, Hey, you're right. Well, what do we do at a party? Gail said, I think we're doing it. We're laughing. We're talking. Alan brought some treats. We forgot about that. He had snacks the whole time that he was letting us borrow. I said, yeah, you're right. So this is a party. And they danced. They had met some crickets along the way who started playing their legs as they do, like violins. They had beautiful music. People made costumes. Unfortunately, they had party hats that they just happened to have anyway because, you know, the badger had them. And so that's what they did. They enjoyed each other's company and getting to know each other better. And from that day forward, every year, they would come together to celebrate their invention of a party with all their best friends. And that's the way it went. And they realized that they loved each other, they cared for each other, and they took care of each other. And it was the best party they ever had for the rest of their lives. The end. <laughs>